onto today. Uh, if you're watching or listening online, my name is Stephen Feith. I'm the lead pastor of Madison Church, and this is a pre-recorded message. Um, I found some brutal facts I want to share with you today, some brutal facts. Okay, a fairly recent Gallup poll survey found that upwards, upwards to 75% of Americans identify as a Christian. Upwards to 75%, upwards to three out of four people. Um, now, a lot of studies on this kind of topic and these questions have been done recently, and there are some variations um, between their findings. 75% seems to be high, but uh, 65% is about as low as it goes. So we're talking about anywhere from two-thirds to three-fourths of the average American walking down the street would say, yes, I'm a Christian, if you were to um, ask them. Now, <clears throat> That is the majority of people in our country, okay? So it's more than half. And uh, that would be upwards to like 242 million people in the United States. If you were looking for an exact number, I mean, hundreds of millions of people in the United States who would identify uh, as a Christian. Now, in Madison, that's a little bit different. In Madison, we're about four out of 10. Um, so that that number drops uh, significantly here in our city. But um, nonetheless, when we're looking at our nation, most people identify as a Christian. I bring that up because there's another study uh, from Barna Research Group, and they set out to determine whether the people who self-proclaimed to be Christians had the actions and attitudes of Jesus, or if they were more akin to the beliefs and behaviors of Pharisees, that often hypocritical, hyper-legalistic, religious elite group of Jesus's day. And those findings revealed that over half, over half of the self-identified Christians in the United States are characterized by having the attitudes and actions as defined and are identified as pharisaical. I think I got a little graph to show you. On the other end of the scale, only 14%, just over one out of 10 self-identified Christians um, represent the actions and attitudes researchers found to be consistent of those with Jesus. Now, I don't know if that surprises you or not. Maybe some of you are a little bit more cynical and you're like, oh, of course, that makes total sense. Um, some of you that might be disappointing, uh, you might think, "How? Do, what kind of questions were they asking? And there's no way it's that low. Um, but I bring these studies up because I wanted to point out that it would seem that a person in the United States, it would seem that we almost have this religion of Christianity in which um, you don't need to follow Jesus to call yourself a Christian. Right. I mean, that's almost what the study shows. This is what the study shows. The majority of people say, I'm a Christian. But then when we look at how are they following, do they look more like Jesus or they look more like religious elite? The majority look like the religious elite. So a person doesn't need to follow Jesus to call themselves a Christian. And I want to explore that today in the next couple of weeks, especially if you do consider yourself a Christian. If you do consider yourself a Christian, is that really what it means to be a Christian, that we don't really need to follow Jesus. Is it optional? Or if we are a Christian, do we have to follow Jesus? And if so, why are we so off when we look at the study? Why are we so off between what we say we believe and then how we behave? So today we're starting this four-part series called The Lake Effect. Now, much of Jesus's ministry before his crucifixion and resurrection took place on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And over the next month, we'll look at several of those key encounters of Jesus has, that Jesus has with his followers on or even around this lake that show us, that show us what it really means to follow Jesus, which is what Jesus intended for all of us 
to do. It wasn't just about saying a certain prayer, believing certain things, checking a particular box, but rather it was about following him. And today we'll begin with something that gives us the clearest uh, picture of Jesus's intentions, and that is the calling of his very first disciples. And so if you want to follow along and read with us, we're going to Matthew um, chapter 4. We have free Bibles around the room. The words will also be on the screen. Um, But Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, and it's a biography of Jesus's life, one of four that we have, and he's going to record the story of the life of Jesus. And um, when we get into chapter four, I'll set the scene for you. Jesus has already been baptized at this point. Uh, It happened right at the end of chapter three. Jesus is baptized. In the beginning of chapter four, Jesus is led into the wilderness for a period of prayer and fasting. So before Jesus does anything, the miracles, the healing, the teachings, Jesus, he goes off. He has the power of the Spirit with him, but he goes off for prayer and fasting. After 40 days of being tempted by Satan, he comes back. Um, We see that he's doing a little bit of traveling and preaching, not a whole lot at this point, just a little bit. And it's at this point where Jesus begins to call his disciples. At this point, he has no disciples, and he begins to call them. And so in Matthew chapter 4, starting with verse 18, we read, One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water. For for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. The first thing that sticks out to me about this passage is, uh, I think we can read over these passages and not give them a a whole lot of thought. They almost seem like kind of maybe historical filler, like they're the transition between the important stories. We have this Jesus baptized and goes to a wilderness, prays and fast. We're like, wow, that's awesome. And then we get to this part where, okay, yes, factually speaking, he called people, um, but where's he going next? Like, where's the the big story that we like to read about? Um, You might call this like a flyover passage. If any of you do the Bible in one year, or you're reading it, you're just kind of like maybe just skimming. Um, But there's a lot going on here that we should look at. This is no simple story at all. It is profoundly um, important because it does show us the difference in this one moment between somebody who would say, I'm a Christian, and someone who says, I'm a follower of Jesus. So for example, think about these two brothers. Um, They are working together. They're in the middle of a shift as far as we know. This is the family fishing business. Think about the economy, how much different it is. This wasn't like you went to Panera Bread and filled out an application and got the job. This was like if you made money, it was your family's business. And so they're brothers. They're working um, probably with their dad and their grandpa who started the business if they're still alive. And then this guy who is relatively unknown at the time. Remember, Jesus had just been baptized, just got back from the wilderness, just started traveling and teaching, relatively unknown. And Jesus says, follow me, which we all, most of us know, that's a very packed request. That's a very packed request. Um, Jesus wasn't saying, leave the fishing business and come into the religion business. He wasn't saying, I have a change of careers for you. Um, This wasn't an invitation. He says, hey, I'm teaching at the local synagogue Sunday at 11 o'clock. You should be there. Come follow me. I'll I'll be there. Um, It wasn't that. It wasn't even, hey, will you check a certain box? If somebody asks you about your faith and what you believe, will you just tell them it's me, that you believe in me? That wasn't at all what he was saying. When Jesus says, come, follow me, it wasn't just that they would change some ideas that they had. It wasn't just changing some beliefs that they had. 
and believing some other things. When he says, come follow me, it wasn't just to change some of the behaviors of their life. You know, you should really stop doing that because it's really unhealthy. You should keep doing that because it's really healthy. But rather, Jesus' call to follow me was everything. It was their whole life, from their toes to their heads, from the thoughts, the words, everything they did. Jesus wanted them to radically change how they did everything. You could say it like this, which is what they literally did. He says, put down your nets. Let go of the things that you have held on to for so long. And think about for these two brothers, when we're saying let go of your nets, we're not talking about just letting go of your nets. We're not just talking about leaving your shift early one day. When they let go of their nets, it was part of that was I might be disappointing my family. I might be letting them down. I might be walking in to extreme poverty because if I don't keep fishing, my neighbor might see an opportunity in this economy to start fishing and then I'll be out of a business. And so Jesus is saying, put down your nets. There's so much more at stake than just letting go of ropes. He's saying, put down your nets as in leave your old identity. You have an old identity, now you have a new one. Put that down. Your old security, all of the things that you have that you hold on to, the thing, the foundation that you stand on, let that go and follow me. And I want you to think today, if Jesus were to come to your business, the place that you work tomorrow or later on this week, and Jesus walks up and he says, stop what you're doing, come follow me. You might think that he's just saying, you know, stop literally what you're doing. But I want you to think bigger because when he says, come follow me, he's saying, What makes you, you? How would you define yourself? What makes you, you? Where do you find your identity? And maybe you answer that question by talking about what you're good at, your successes. So none of us in the room are pro athletes, right? But if you were a pro athlete and somebody asked you what makes you, you, you might say, I'm a Super Bowl champion. You might say, I'm the reigning NBA MVP. Those might be some of the things that you talk about. That's who I am. I'm very good at this. These are my successes. For a bunch of us, I think that when we're asked to tell people about ourselves, what makes us us, we talk about our job or our career. Well, why don't you tell me about yourself? Well, I'm a pastor of the church that we started in 2014. Was that really what they were asking? Well, I think in our society sometimes. But is that where I find my identity as being a pastor? Is that where you find your identity is in your career, your job, um, being a student perhaps? That's where you find your identity. Do we find our identity in the things that we have, a big house, a new car, Fancy new tech, the newest stuff out there. Do we find it in what we own, what we possess? We might talk about it in terms of relationships. This is another one that's very common. Tell me about yourself. I am married. I'm married to Megan. Or you might say, I'm single. You might say, I'm a parent. I have kids, Oliver and Elijah and Quinn. And and you might define yourself that way. That is how we commonly define ourselves. I'm not picking on you. That's how I do it. We all do this. If you're a human in the room, you have defined yourself that way. We can look it up on Twitter or Instagram or TikTok and find out what does your bio say about you. It'll often have those descriptors of you because that is how we find our identity. And so when Jesus comes onto the picture and says, drop your nets, I want you to get this image of he's saying, delete your Instagram bio. Leave that blank. (laughs) I want you to think of him when he says, drop your nets. I want you to think for a moment, I got to hold on. I'm not a parent first. Uh, I'm not an employee first. My identity isn't how much I'm worth. Um, Jesus is telling me that what matters most as I walk toward him is him. 
Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with those things. I want you to be a good parent. I want you to do well at work and get promoted. I want you to do all of those things because there are a lot of good things about all of those things. And to be honest, God has put you in those positions, right? God has called you to those positions. God has called you to being a parent, to being a spouse. God has put you in those positions. So there are a lot of good things, but not when they're secondary, not when following Jesus is secondary. See, he's supposed to be first. Following Jesus is supposed to be first. And oftentimes what we do is we elevate being a student, being a mom, being a dad, being, we elevate that above him. Oh, and yeah, and by the way, I'm a Christian. Aha. And we're back to the beginning, to the problem. I'm a Christian. Check the box. But I look more like some religious hypocrites from 2,000 years ago than I look like the Messiah I'm supposed to look like. And let me point out too that when you're thriving in those areas, when you are thriving, whether it's at work, at home, with all of your stuff, your fancy gadgets, whatever it might be, when you are thriving in those areas, it becomes way easier to identify as a Christian than to be a follower of Jesus. It gets harder with the more success that you experience in your life. And so when Jesus comes to us and says, come follow me. I think that what I'm trying to tell you is that is a far different thing than what most people think today when they think of Christianity or Christian. When they think of Christianity or Christian, they might think of the people who identify that way and have the views, the attitudes, the behaviors of the Pharisees. But what Jesus had in mind when he called his first disciples and as he calls you and me today and and people from the last couple thousands of years, he's calling us to something way bigger. And of course, we know Jesus didn't just have two disciples. He had 12. And so this is an ask he made again. We read in verse 21, a little farther up the shore. So Jesus just asked uh, Peter and Andrew, a little further up the shore, he saw two other brothers, maybe their competition in the fishing industry, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father, Zebedee. And they were repairing their nets. And he called to them too. And they immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. Again, we don't know a whole lot about Jesus, but he calls these guys and they say, yeah, let's do it. And they leave their dad. I don't know if that meant Zebedee wasn't asked, the dad wasn't asked to follow Jesus, or if Zebedee said, no way, I don't know you. And and right here's my security, my identity. I'm old enough to know we don't just follow any prophet or teacher who comes through town. And and his young boys were like, oh, this might be fun. You know, I'm a little little soul searching here. Uh, And so Zebedee stays behind, but Jesus says, follow me. And that kind of brings us to this other point, which is anybody who thinks that Jesus went around asking people to be nicer or just believe certain things hasn't read the fine print. That's not a biblical view of what Jesus did. Jesus went around saying some profoundly shocking things, like in Matthew 10, 37, in which he says, if you love your father or mother more than you love me, you are not worthy of being mine. Or if you love your son or daughter more than me, You are not worthy of being mine. And Jesus kind of goes for the throat here. It's kind of shocking. He's saying, think about the people in your life you love the most. If you're young, it's probably your parents. If you're old, it's probably your kids. But just think about the people you love the most. And Jesus says, I need to be first. And if I can't be first, then you are not worthy of being mine. And we do. We talk about Jesus's love, grace, and forgiveness all the time. And Jesus is all of those things but he does make it clear, I need to be first. Following me is first 
and foremost. And understand that in our society, family is really important, uh, but understand that in their society is probably more crucial than it is in ours. Because you can move away from your family and, and your livelihood isn't going to uh, depend on that. But back then, you didn't have social services. You didn't have a government that protected you. Um, if you ran out of money, if you ran out of food, your backup plan was your mom, dad, brother, sister. It was somebody else that you were related to. And so when he's saying, I need to be more important than your family, that was very more controversial 2,000 years ago than it would be today if Jesus came in here and said that. Scholars say that his call to be the ultimate priority above parents and children was something that not even the most esteemed rabbi would demand. They're saying not even the most popular, influential Pharisee 2,000 years ago would have said that. And that's what Jesus comes out and he says, and the statement implicitly declares that he is God, because only God could demand that you love him more than your wife, your husband, your mom, your dad, or your kids. Jesus calls people, all of us, to a radical redefinition of who we are and what we will live for, but also what we are willing to die for. On several occasions, Jesus says, if you cling to your life, you will lose it. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. Following Jesus is was is risking for every single one of us. It is risking. It's being willing to lose the comfort of familiarity. Are you willing to risk that? For your, are you willing to risk being uncomfortable? It might be risking the home where you were raised with your family, the town you grew up in. Are you willing to step out and do that? It might be your ties to the community. These were all aspects that as those first followers of Jesus, as he called them, that's what they were risking. They risked it all, their comfort, their family, uh, relationships, the ties to the community. There absolutely is a cost to following Jesus, but it comes with a great reward. And that's what it means to follow Jesus with our whole lives. We say yes to Jesus. And by that, we let go. We open up our hands and we drop the nets, whatever the nets are metaphorically in our lives, our careers, our families, our friends, our communities, whatever they might be, we let them go. And as we begin to follow Jesus, I think we got to take a couple of really practical steps. And one of those is that we need to follow Jesus with our passions. I'm sure you've heard that, you know, um, what you care the most about is what you believe in the most. Whatever you're most passionate about is what you're most convicted about. And there is a mountain of research, uh, studies that have been done on this that shows that um, emotion plays a much bigger role in how we make decisions than information or belief. That makes some of you who are really thinkers and in your head makes you uncomfortable, right? If you're watching online, you're like, I like to think and analyze and, and really come to an objective kind of point of view before I make a decision. They're saying, sure, sure, but statistically, scientifically, the studies show that your heart plays a lot bigger of a role in that than, than you would be comfortable. What we care about, what we're passionate about, ends up driving us. And it ends up driving what we believe. I can explain this um, to you in a way that every person who's older than 13 should be able to understand. Um, my son, Oliver, 
Uh, he's six years old and he plays golf this summer twice a week with uh, the first tee, which is just a little organization. Or it's a big organization, but they teach kids the golf fundamentals and important life lessons. I looked up some of the life lessons that Oliver is supposed to be learning this summer. And they said he's going to learn how to set goals, take responsibility and uh, better manage his emotions. And I'm praying for that last one. I'm like, yes, God, please let golf teach him that. Um, now, the last couple of times he's gone out, you guys might have noticed it's been really hot and humid in Madison the last few weeks, hasn't it? And so the last few times he's gone out, he's been out for a few hours golfing in the heat and humidity. And the moment we get in the truck, I don't notice it when we're outside and the wind's blowing, um, just how not fresh he is smelling until he sits in my car. And now we're like, oh my gosh, he stinks. I smell body odor. I smell sweat. I smell everything that he had walked through the last nine holes. It's all in my truck. I'm like for breezing at the minute he walks out trying to, to, to clean it up. But he he, if you have a little kid, you know this, right? They're oblivious. Like they don't know they smell bad. He's just like, this is what I did. This is what I did. Awesome. I didn't do good here. And I'm just trying not to throw up in my car. Um, any other parents know firsthand what I'm talking about? Your kids? Yes. Melly, maybe nieces or nephews. Um, you're like, yes, I definitely know. Now, the good thing about Oliver is that he's not bath adverse. Okay, he's not bath adverse, he, so we can get him washed up quickly without a fight. That's fine. Um, some of you have kids who fight that. I'm sorry, that's tough. Uh, but I've been told, I've been told that at some point Oliver will become self-aware and know that he smells bad after a round of golf or playing basketball. At some point he'll be aware. But, but while he's aware that he smells, and while he knows the solution to not smelling will be to take a shower, and some of you with older kids, you can. Nod your head and let me know if I'm right or wrong. But even if he smells bad and knows that he needs to take a shower, he will be too busy doing something else to take a shower and clean up with older kids. Maybe you're like, yes, this is true. Okay. Again, it's this, he knows there's the belief is there, but the passion is somewhere else. But then, but then at some point I've been told again, that something is going to change. All of a sudden, at some point in Oliver's life, I'm going to wake up one day and Oliver's not even not only going to be showered. He's not only going to be wearing deodorant, but he is going to be doused in some cheap cologne he picked up at Walmart. And all of this will be done on purpose as he goes off to school. Apparently something has changed. Apparently there's somebody he wants to get to notice him. Apparently there's someone if they do notice him, he doesn't want to be the stinky kid in class. I wonder what that might be, or who that is. But see, all of a sudden, because I've been told Oliver's passions are going to change someday, and Elijah's, and, and all of us who grew up, you remember this, your passions changed. You knew you smelled bad. You knew you needed to take a shower, but the video game or the TV show was way cooler than taking a shower. You didn't have time for the shower, but then all of a sudden, someone comes into your life, your hormones change, and all of a sudden, your passion changes, and you're like, I need to take a shower. This is way more important than what I thought. And so as followers of Jesus, don't be the stinky kid is what I'm trying to say. You know what to believe. You know what to believe and you even know what to do. But is that where your passion is at? Because if your passion isn't there, you could know you're the stinky kid. You could know what to do and you're still not going to do it. And it is time today. Today is the day to start to become passionate about the things that Jesus was passionate about. You might say, Stephen, how do I know what Jesus was passionate about? Start reading the Gospels. Start reading Matthew. And you're going to find out it's not hard to figure out 
what Jesus was passionate about. He was passionate about loving people. He was passionate about hearing people. He was passionate about being an advocate for people. He was passionate about justice. He was, a passion, he was passionate about second chances. Are those the type of things that we are also passionate about? And then once we get passionate about that, we do, we follow it up with our actions. Because as I've said, there is a direct relationship between our passions and initiatives, what we do. And the more passionate you are about something, the more proactive you're going to be about it. To be a follower of Jesus means not just care about what Jesus cared about, but it means to go where Jesus is going. Greek, the original language of the New Testament has several expressions for how to follow me, but they're all built on a physical following. So when we read follow Jesus, I know 2000 years after Jesus, we think that we're, we got a, it's a type of teaching that we need to subscribe to, but in the original language, it's a verb for walking and following Jesus. We need to take that meaning back. As you go to work tomorrow, are we following Jesus at work? Are we following Jesus in the home? Are we following Jesus in the neighborhood, in our relationships? Are we physically doing it? And the thing I need to point out is that Jesus does not stand still. We might think that he lived his life already. He died, he's resurrected. Now he's sitting on a chair in heaven, but that is not the case. Jesus is not waiting for time to run out. Jesus is actively moving and working in all of our lives and in our communities doing something. He's always active. He is always on the move. So following Jesus means a change in our outward direction to where we go, how we go, and to go where he says to go. And this brings us to another important distinction. Christians might define spiritual maturity by how much they know, how much spiritual information they have in their brain, but followers of Jesus, true followers of Jesus, don't focus on knowing, they focus on going. Like the first followers that Jesus says, come, follow me, what did they do? They went with him. It was about going. They followed him where he was going. Growing in our faith biblically and according to Jesus means shortening the amount of time between what Jesus says do and how quickly we do it. And please don't misunderstand me. I'm very much about people reading the Bible and studying the Bible and seeking greater depths of understanding of Jesus and the Bible and faith and spirituality. I'm not trying to diminish that at all, but I'm saying what weighs more in our lives as Christians, as followers of Jesus is how quickly we obey, how quickly we know Jesus is saying something to us, and then we go and do it. Because acquiring more knowledge is useless if it doesn't lead to greater action. Spiritual maturity isn't about what you know. It's how about how quickly you are willing to go. And I want to ask you this kind of reflective question as I wrap it up. In the past six months, Think about this. The, the decisions that you've made the last half a year, this, the 2022, when you're following Jesus and he says, go do this or go say this, is the time it takes you to respond increasing, decreasing, or staying the same? Something that you feel like God has spoke to you, right? We just did that series on how to hear from God and, and God speaking to us. And so we're hearing from God, God is speaking to us, and we know God wants us to do something. How quickly are we responding to that? And what is the trend? In the last six months, are we getting slower at responding? 
And maybe somebody else will do it. God, you better ask someone else. And if they say no, you can circle back and then y'all do it. Kind of like a boss calling us in for an extra shift. I could, but have you called so-and-so yet? Is it increasing? Are we eager? Are we passionate? Yes, Jesus, I believe that what you have for me is better than I have for me. And if you tell me to go there, I'm going to go there no matter how uncomfortable. Or is it just staying the same? And growing as a follower of Jesus means having less and less time between those moments when Jesus says move and us moving. Again, spiritual maturity isn't just about what you know. It's about how quickly you're willing to go. And so my challenge for you this week is as you hear from Jesus, as you hear from God and are led by the Spirit, reduce the amount of time it takes for you to follow him. What if today became a very significant day in your spiritual journey? What if today became a a significant day with your faith? You didn't think it would be when you woke up this morning. We're just going to come to church today and, and knock this out. But today becomes a day where you step up and step forward in the ways that Jesus is calling you to. And you may not remember today. It's not exactly a milestone day like a baptism is. But what if today the trajectory of your life, the decisions that you're making, following Jesus becomes a little bit more of a priority. And you do that and you walk in that. And again, you're not going to be able to point to today, but in one year. If I were to come back and ask the same question, by then you've all forgotten this talk and you've all forgotten everything I've said and that's okay. But we come back and I say, when it comes to following Jesus, are you increasing, decreasing, or stagnant? And I want you to all be able to enthusiastically say without any doubt, it is increasing every day. The time between Jesus says go and me going has increased. It's almost instantaneous. I don't even have to think about it. I think about it as I'm walking. That's what I want for us today. And so when we hear Jesus say, follow me, let our answer be, I'm in. I'm putting down my familiar nets of identity and security and even self-centeredness, and I'm in. I'm your follower from now on.